Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipper, the club's vice president of media and editorial, and your co-host for today's program. Now, we hope you are staying safe and are healthy wherever you are. And we look forward to seeing you in person one day again, when it's safe, at the Commonwealth Club's headquarters in San Francisco. Until that happens, though, we are doing all of our programming online. This is the latest in more than 360 online programs the club has produced during the pandemic. You can find all of our upcoming programs, as well as our podcasts and videos from our past programs at commonwealthclub.org. Now, if you're watching us live on YouTube, use the chat box to submit questions for our esteemed panel, and we'll try to work some of those into our conversation today. And it's going to be a great conversation with a great panel about a great topic. So now I want to introduce Michelle Miao, the producer and host of The Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Good to see you again, Michelle. Thank you so much, John. And thank you to the Commonwealth Club of California for bringing incredible thought leaders together in this way. Our esteemed panel, as you said, John, will discuss Making the Case, a short documentary exploring daily objects and handbags of the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which gives us an opportunity to get to know the great justice in the most relatable and personal way. It's my honor to introduce you to our panelists. We have Laura Brill, who's the former clerk for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Jennifer Callahan, who's the director of Making the Case Estelle Parsons, Academy Award-winning actress and director, and also Daniel Stiebelman, who's the screenwriter and recipient of the Humanitas Prize for his film, On the Basis of Sex. Why don't we start with how the idea came to fruition, why the interest in Justice Ginsburg's um, handbags. Jennifer? Hi, and thank you so much for having the film and me and all of us here. Um, well, I, um, if you look at uh, women who we see in public having some kind of public political power in the United States, um, I, I was in a conversation with friends and I realized even though women often carry bags in daily life, when they're photographed, we never see them with a bag. And um, like when Hillary Clinton was running for office, she never carried a bag, but Huma Abedin behind her would carry like five gigantic totes. But Justice Ginsburg was one person in that realm who always carried a bag. And I thought it was really interesting. And so I, I was lucky enough to be able to approach her. And she, she amazingly was very open to the idea. Um, now, when I first heard about this documentary and focusing on her, on her handbags, I, it did strike me as being very unique. And of course, I, I was reminded of uh, Madeleine Albright, who has a succession of pins that she'll wear. And she always has a story about each one. When you got into this, what kind of stories, not only about the bags, but about her, did you start to learn as you got into it? That's a great question. I, I, I started to he- learn um, how very organized, she, I, it's very hard to say the past tense, so I think I'm not going to say the past tense, how very organized a person she is. I, I don't know what, how to, what tense to use. Um, and that, you know, pockets were very important to her, as, as you said to Michelle, and she had a very clear sense of how she organized her day. And she often had a second bag. She talks about that later, the tote bag um, for her gym clothes. And, um, and, and not someone who was, who was sort of recklessly um, or joyfully, whatever, buying tons of bags, but a bag needed to be durable. That was also very important. So it, she had to like it, but it had to be very practical. That's also a great question for some of the others here on, on the panel. I mean, Daniel, you're her nephew. <laughs> But, uh, you know, uh, a film and also kind of looking at it from this angle, right, you find out certain things about people and people you've spent your entire life with that you may not have known. So I think you know, it'd be interesting to hear you answer that question as well. And also Laura, Estelle, Daniel. Um, I mean, for me, the the beauty of the film is, I mean, I've, I've, I've been in the Ruth Bader Ginsburg tour for a long time because every time I'm in New York, every time she comes to New York, we get an invitation. And it's like, I'm trying to think of the band, it's like going to see the Eagles in concert or it's like everybody shows up in the shirt. They've been on the same tour for 50 years and everyone just wants to hear the hits. And so, you know, you're, you're there and she's telling, you know, there's someone in the back doing like, do when there's nine. And there's, you know, there's somebody in there, you know, and in case that didn't track, you know, then the moderator says, when, when will there be enough women on the Supreme Court? And then she says, when there's nine, then the whole crowd flips out. And then she says, because if you think about it, it was all men for hundreds of years and nobody blinked an eye. 
And, and the beauty of the film and sort of going through the angle of the handbag is that it was the first time I've seen um, Ruth on film or sort of in front of an audience where she's the same person that she is at home, you know, or she is when she comes over for dinner, uh, where she's just casual and telling stories. And it's always, it's, uh, there's often stories about artifacts, you know, the, this ring I'm wearing, this bag that I'm holding, this, this earring, um, and, you know, with memories of often of her mother and of her childhood, and then a sprinkling of gender equity history. Um, and, and somehow, uh, because, uh, because of this sort of back door of going through the handbag, uh, Jennifer was able to, to capture that person who I know, you know, sort of Aunt Ruth, not Notorious RBG on film, um, which is, which is the, the, the beauty of, I think, what she accomplished. Laura? Yeah, no, Jim, but yeah, so I think, I, I think that's right. And, and um, there is this real warmth um, in the film and kind of a mischievous quality um, that, that uh, Jennifer brings out in, in the film of, I think, at, you know, after she pulls out her constitution, which we all have with us um, today, she up. Oh, Great. So she also brings out, you know, here's my cell phone and here's my uh, eyeglasses. And so it's like a little tour of her um, of things that she holds close to her. And, you know, one thing that people don't necessarily think about is that judges have, you know, they often can't talk to or relate to people in the public about the things that they're actually working on and engrossed in because it's confidential and they're not supposed to, you know, to, uh, give tip their hand to how they might come out in a future, um, you know, matter. And so, and I think that's true, you know, for a lot of things in public life. So it makes sense to have another, you know, a different way in and bags is kind of a beautiful unifying um, theme. And of course, for the justice, you know, she loved opera and, um, and art, uh, you know, and travel. And I think as, as for folks who watch the film, that's another theme that gets um, developed and incorporated um, you know, into the bag. So it lets people relate to her as a person in a, in a beautiful way. Yeah. And they all mean so much. They all mean something to her. It's not just, Oh, I have 50 bags and which one shall I take? She has that one that has uh, all pieces from costumes at the Metropolitan Opera. I love uh, that one. They obviously uh, have meaning to her, but it's funny because when, when women carry a big bag, like the first one there that she's dealing with, you think it's going to be full, you know, of Kleenexes that she's stuffed in there because she might need them and old taxi slips and everything. But I have an idea that's not true at all of what's in that beautiful bag with all those pockets. She loves having all those pockets, but I'm not sure what's in all those pockets because she seems like a very organized person. It's such a lovely, um, I, I think it's hard for people who are not in the entertainment world, which I am. Uh, it's, it's hard um, when they relate to the public and people in her position have very often, uh, I guess I'm talking about men mostly, the men, because I, I, only, I know Sonia, but I don't. I don't, but I haven't seen her in an official capacity. But um, it's very often hard for uh, people to uh, to 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 have a camera on them. They do or they don't have a public persona, and I think it's such a tribute to Jennifer that she seems very at ease there and very happy to be talking about something that is, of course, uh, doesn't begin to uh, test any of her intellectual faculties, which are so profound. And I love that one from China that was all beads. They're all very meaningful to her, and that's, that's wonderful. I don't know how many of us have all the things we have are really meaningful to us or not, or, or women just buy, 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 because, oh, I like that, I'll buy, and then it sits in the closet. She doesn't strike me as that kind of person at all. 
Jennifer, take us behind the scenes. What was it like working with her? What was she, you know, when you would have sit downs with her and, and wanted to get her talking? How, how did that go? Um, well, I first I had to summon up, first I had the idea, and then I really summoned up nerve to ask her. I did not, I, you know, I, so I was proud of myself for asking. And, um, and then about five months after asking, I heard yes. And then I heard the interview could take place about four months after that. And um, she was coming to New York. We filmed in New York uh, for, I think, a conference or some kind of meeting. And, um, you know, all I said to Justice Ginsburg was, you know, bring whatever bags are meaningful to you, just as you all are saying, and um, we'll talk about them. And she didn't ask for the questions beforehand. And uh, there was no preparation. I really wanted it to be easy and fun for her. And... Um, um, you know, I had two friends who were PAs who took the day off from work and one of them was running to get coffee and she wanted her coffee black, I remember. And, um, you know, so, so we just were trying to make the environment as we, we were ready to go when she arrived and uh, we started talking about the bags and then it was just so much fun and each bag was carefully wrapped in plastic. And I guess I was very moved that I thought of her, you know, in DC, preparing and wrapping all the bags and then some, however she traveled to New York, they all traveled with her. I was very touched by that, that they had their journey with her. Um, and then I realized, so then we had our interview. It was wonderful. And I felt she had more to say, but she had to, she had to go somewhere else, you know? So I was, you know, very grateful. I wasn't trying to, you know, be greedy with her time. Um, but then I realized after the interview, Oh, you know, she has these great stories and she's so wonderful, but at some point you actually want to look at the bags themselves. And so I had to go back. I had to write, I realized this a little bit later. I asked if I could go to DC and borrow the bags for a photo shoot. So that was the whole story. Do you want to hear that story or? Sure. Yes. Okay. Yes. okay. So, so, so um, that was like a matter of going to the Supreme court and working with her team and I could, she brought as many of the bags, she, she brought a number of those bags, but the Metropolitan bag, which was my favorite bag too, she had thrown out in between because it had was falling apart and they were sick. <laughs> so anyway, we couldn't photograph that one. But um, I had, meanwhile, someone I knew knew someone who was a wedding photographer in DC. And even though this photographer had never photographed bags, it seemed like she had photographed objects. And she had a studio um, sort of near Howard University in DC. So I could use the bags only, I could take them from the Supreme Court like at 1 p.m. and then return them by like 5.30 p.m. And I don't really know DC. So that was kind of an adventure to go and get the bags. <laughs> then I felt like, you know, very anxious. <laughs> they were in my, you know, I had to like take good care of them. We got them. And then the photographer was like, hmm, how are we going to photograph them? And so then we did lots of different shoots. And then she really cleverly, Kate Headley is her name, figured out, oh, each one needed stuffing in them so that they would have kind of a presence in front of the white like uh, foam board. And so, so that was like, ended up being really fun having the photo shoots of the bags, um, different ways. And then I had to bundle them back up and then drive back to, you know, down through traffic. I don't want to be late. I don't want to be late. Am I going to get there? And so it all worked out. Um, but it was just, it was a lot of anxiety. <laughs> that, that almost, I had more anxiety than the shoot with her because she was so sort of genteel and relaxed and, and really seemed to enjoy talking about these objects. And I, I think it sort of amused her too. But when you say you first tried to reach her and then four months went by and then you did something and then four months went by, I mean, how, isn't that like, that's not a normal sort of progression in our business for things to happen, is it? No, no, it was like exactly as still. It was like being on, yeah, different time, different, different. You might have been on to another project by then. <laughs> it's true, I might have been, but I, you know. I wanted I wanted her, so it was yeah. you know it was going to happen whenever she could do it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Jennifer, while while we're still on you, I, we're getting a number of questions in the the chat room asking when will and how will people be able to see this? Has a distribution deal been made, or uh, where should they find out when it is? What can they find out? That's such a great question. I love that practical question. Um, 
It, I'm in, uh, it'll be on the New Yorker through Condé Nast. Um, should be early February. I don't think before that, but it's called Making the Case. And I have a website, makingthecasemovie.com. So I will also um, announce it there. Thank you for asking whoever asked. A question for Laura. Um, you all brought the U.S. Constitution with you, but we saw there in that short clip that that is something that the justice brought with her every day or in her daily bag. Uh, and although we were, you know, watching her handbags, we do get glimpses of her, you know, the mind frame of a, a legal scholar, right? Like the, these, these are important things that one should have. Um, what can you tell us in terms of, you know, what she said about the importance of carrying the Constitution with you every day, and maybe perhaps if that was a little nugget into her her thoughts or her views of where the, the current political in, or environment, you know, was at. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. So I'm not sure we ever, you know, that I ever had the idea of talking to her about what was in her handbag or, or whether she, um, you know, physically brought the constitution with her in her comings and goings. I will notice that one thing that you could see in the corner of the constitution when she pulled it out is there was a post-it like or a, or, a, or a tape flag or something sitting there. So I did have a lot of curiosity of wondering right? what, like, what, really right? what, is, what was she tagging? What was she thinking about, um, you know, right then that she needed to pull it out? And was it, was it some, was it a provision that she um, is because of repetition, she knew she always would have to find it or was it something obscure that she didn't remember offhand just from working with it for so many years, what it says. But, you know, I think you can tell, you know, for every case that she worked on, I mean, she cared in her life and in her work and was, you know, hugely devoted to bringing the Constitution to life. And that's one of the things she talks about in the film, that we don't have a, you know, just an aspirational Constitution. We have a Constitution that is enforceable and that we, and it's like, you know, in terms of the relationship to the bag, it's like if you were filming a carpenter, they would pull out a hammer from their bag or their tool or their saw or their tools. And for her, this was the tool of her, you know, of her life's work. So it, it makes a lot of sense. Laura, did she do, sorry, Dan. No, go for it. Uh, did, did she do all her work at the office or did she take her work home? The bags that she showed us, you don't have the idea that she's uh, sort of carrying her homework home or well, I, yeah, I think she worked all the time. I mean, I think Daniel would, you know, have maybe better insight to that, but um, she worked very long hours. She worked very late at night. She would often, you know, this, I clerked in the mid nineties. And so we, we, um, uh, you know, she would call on her way into work from her cell phone and and you know I mean these were weighty issues and I think she was you know always even if she wasn't physically writing things I think she was thinking about um the cases you know maybe all the time except when she was in the opera or eating dinner with her family <laughs> I don't know what do you think Dan Daniel um no her work habits were insane uh she would I mean I would I would, the last time we were I was with her for a length of time was a year ago uh, next month, right before COVID. Um, my wife lived with her for a month. She was working in DC and I brought the kids down and we stayed for a week. And um, at night I would be exhausted and go to sleep. You know, we'd sit, we'd have dinner. We'd polish off a couple bottles of wine. We'd all go to bed and I'd wake up in the morning. And she'd still be sitting at her desk working. And it's just like, how old are you? Um, and I would get to a point where, you know, I, I know for me, and I'm getting tired at night. I'm like, no, my my 85 year old aunt is still up. Like, I can keep working. If she can keep working, I can keep going. Um, uh, on the Constitution, I, I can tell you that when I was a kid, she she and Uncle Marty used to come to my parents' house for Thanksgiving every year, and she would bring Hanukkah presents. And every year, she brought me the same gift from like the ages of five to twelve, and it was the copy of the U.S. Constitution every single year, just like every little boy dreams of. And and when I was like a teenager. 
I would think, what is she doing? Like, why, why does she think this is the present I want? And then I got to be in my 20s and I thought, ah, she's teaching me something very important about patriotism and the institutions and the government. And now I'm in my 30s and I have kids of my own and a job. And I realized, no, she just had a discount at the Supreme Court gift shop and she could you know, go downstairs and pick it up easily. Um, so my relationship to the Constitution has changed in intimate ways over the, over the decades. Uh, I'm going to start with Estelle, but I want everyone to, to chime in on this question. Um, someone in the audience asks, or says, women often get asked about their fashion choices in lieu of discussing their, their career and professional questions. We always see this, of, you know, some famous male does something, and then you get the, you know, the, 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 the discussion of what the, his wife was wearing. Um, do you think this film supports that pattern or tries to push back on it? Do you think it reflects that, uh, that uh, focus on fashion for women as kind of a way of not taking them seriously in many ways, though. Gosh, I don't know. I think they are treated very differently. I mean, I don't know if Jennifer had asked those men, what are they carrying in their pockets? That, that would not, you know, just the picture of doing that does not make a lot of sense. And I think it was actually very gracious of her to even be willing to share uh, that part of her because it, she even brings up in the film about how the men had the robes that had slits in them so they could get to their pockets. And the women had the robes made so that they had pockets. So the women could actually be in the pockets in the robe because women's clothes don't have uh, pockets all the time. But I think this pocket issue was a really big one because it is just terrible, particularly now that you simply have to carry a cell phone. And when you're going out socially and so on, where the heck are you going to put that great big cell phone and your copy of the Constitution? I mean, you just have to. Uh, it, it's it's too much to even uh, think about. But um uh, uh, women are so different from men now that we have um, uh, Kamala Harris in the news so much. It, it's it's uh, it's so different to contemplate how different men and women are. And I have one boy and I have two girls. And I must say, they're like uh, totally different worlds. I mean, we're all in one world, but men and women are different. And so I'm, I think it's good that women who get into uh, public life are now beginning to be willing to assert themselves. Like the mere fact that she would be willing to talk about her handbags in a very serious way and uh, of their importance to her is a really, really good sign that women are following their own drummer, so to say, though I suspect she always had to follow her own drummer. I know when I went to law school, they would not call on me. There were 290 boys in the class and two women, I mean, two girls. And uh, they, the professors just would not call on either one of us ever, which is kind of, you know, times have changed. <laughs> um, I if, one of the unexpected uh, joys of, of writing on the basis of sex, which is, in case people don't know, about uh, Ruth's first case, which was the only case she ever argued with Uncle Marty um, and was the first time a federal court agreed that gender discrimination on the basis of sex was unconstitutional. Um, uh, one of the things that I, I didn't know I was going to get to experience and was, and was thrilling was was um, through the production process getting to know Ruth and Marty through the eyes of like a production designer, um, and, and looking at you know who you know Ruth would open up her home and we'd go through with the production designer, and he would be able to point at objects and say ah that table to have bought that table in 1970 whatever was an aspirational object if you're a young lawyer and here's what it meant that they bought it and here's what it's meant that they kept it it was it was fascinating and and one of the most insightful people was our costume designer. Um, his name was E.C. Musendon. Um, and E.C. really taught me, uh, she, she did this sort of deep dive research through old photos of Ruth and would look at it and look at 
sort of how Ruth was dressing through different decades and what and and taught me how to look at Ruth's outfits and how and how Ruth was not just uh, you know in on the pages of a legal brief but in the way she presented herself in court um, was was putting on a performance of a character who was specifically unintimidating to judges right it's the 70s and she doesn't want to be thought of as um, you know sort of the 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 version of feminism that they're scared of on TV, you know, on the news. Um, you know, she doesn't want to present herself as someone who's trying to overthrow the system. She wants to present herself as someone who's approachable and reasonable, someone that if your son brought her home, you would be happy to right? She's talking to older men. Um, and, and how that was not just an intellectual exercise and it wasn't just the way she wrote and the way she spoke, but also in the way she dressed and the way she presented herself and that all these things were intertwined. And so I think when it comes to Ruth, um, whose job has an element of performance in it, you can't separate kind of the fashion and the presentation from the intellectual because they were part and parcel of the same thing. Um, and then also to go back to a point I made before, uh, I also think that when you ask Ruth about her intellect and about her job, she goes back to the same stories every time. And so, you know, again, going through the handbags opens up a sort of back door into another side of her personality, which is, you know, the brilliance of the movie. Yeah. You know, the other thing I would add is that this beautiful film is not trying to be the definitive intellectual history of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I mean, I think at this point in her life, she's, been recognized and everybody sees her for the brilliant you know leader that you know that she is and so bringing a human side to that in a very um you know respectful caring um way i think is is great because you know one of the things i think that the justice was and also marty uh, you know were very um uh cure you know careful curators of their presentation. And I think this is kind of what, you know, what Daniel is saying too. There weren't, you know, there weren't a lot of models for um, women in uh, high power and also for the role that their husbands, you know, might play in, um, you know, supporting that and, you know, and reflecting that. And I think they understood pretty well about different kinds of symbols and how you can use symbols in public life. So the, you know, her uh, jabot uh, collars that, you know, that she wears. I think everybody's familiar with those. And she cultivated that as a, you know, a way to amplify her message. So, you know, I think that the film is, is sort of doing something similar um, through the, through the bag uh, motif. Marty kind of did it in the opposite way though. He was sort of proudly, you know, he'd wear golf shirts with holes in it, you know, to work. You know, he was, when we, when, when I got married, my wife and I said to everybody, it's a small wedding. It's just a few people in a friend's backyard. Don't, we're not, don't wear whatever you want. Just be comfortable and come. And everyone set up in shoot suits anyway, because I guess that's what you do. Except for Marty, who shows up in a golf shirt and loafers. And he's like, you said come as I want. <laughs> and we're like, you, you, you absolutely embraced it. Thank you. We're glad you did. Well, and then just to jump on that original question, I guess what, um, what I think Justice Ginsburg is also doing in this film is saying, you know, that which is quotidian, and which is often trivialized as an accessory and traditionally claimed by the female is actually the starting point of stories and meaning and that um, this is important too. So, and that's, that's how I perceive it. And, you know, as I tell the story about Uncle Marty, it, it, you know, Ruth could never have gotten away with that, right? As a young woman trying to break into a man's profession, she couldn't have shown up, you know, in a, in a sweatshirt, you know, that she, she had to curate her her presence in a way that I think, you know, sort of Marty could sort of proudly and defiantly curate his presence in a way that was more casual. The film gives us insight to more of her, her meaningful and deep relationships with people. Um, you know, the Strom Thurmond keychain, the handmade beaded uh, evening purse that she received as a guest or uh, as a gift. Um, you know, many, many people like to talk about her, her friendship with Justice Scalia, even though they had differing opinions. But it seems like you know, by watching the film that she also had deep, meaningful relationships with many other people. Uh, if you could add to that and, and talk a little bit about that, um, that would be awesome. 
Dan, Daniel? Well, she had to have a deep, meaningful relationship with me because we shared genes. Um, I, well, actually, I guess I don't. I shared genes with Uncle Marty. Um, you know, I think, I think that there, there's, there's Ruth and there's Notorious RBG, and I'm not sure that they're the same person. Um, and I think that there's a real joy to know the private person. Um, I always thought that, uh, you know, when, when Uncle Marty was alive, Ruth was happy to let him be the center of attention. Um, and for her to sort of stand to the side and let her, because he was so gregarious and so funny and so outgoing. Um, and I think she lost that, that sort of shield when, when he died. And in a way, Notorious RBG became the shield. It became the sort of persona that people were really attracted to. And people and, and, and in a way, it was her. But she was, um, I think the real Ruth was, was, ne- I, I, was never the sort of tear down the system rebel you know, uh, person that I think the internet turned her into. Um, and she was always sort of quiet um, and enjoyed good stories and was outgoing in a, when she was comfortable um, or when she, it was a note in the, in the script, Ruth famously, um, Marty used to say she's unafraid of radio silence. You know, so she would, there, if you would ask her a question, he was a kid, you know, how are you? And there'd be like this long silence. And then, and, and she would say, fine. And you would think that she didn't hear you. And so you would repeat yourself because there's this long pause until you get used to it. Um, and what I, what I believe is was going on is that the long pause was her composing because she didn't think in words. She thought in paragraphs, whereas I'm just now talking and I have no idea what's going to come out next. Um, she, she, and she, you know, she didn't talk until she knew everything she was going to say. Um, and the difference between, um, and I think that's, that's, that's why she liked to have the stories that she's told a bunch of times because she knows that story. She knows exactly how it's going to go. And it, it, it's easier rapport. And in front of a judge, she's incredibly quick. And on the bench, she's incredibly quick because she's like a chess master. She's already had all the arguments in her head and knows how they all go. And so she's prepared. And so I think the, I, I don't know exactly where I'm going with this other than to say, so to know Ruth intimately is to know the Ruth that's, that's in Jennifer's movie who just seems comfortable and is telling stories and is happy to tell stories um, and remembrances that aren't rehearsed. Um, and is, and I assume there's a lot of editing and because she's also is comfortable enough with the silence to, to let the silence sort of prevail. Um, and that's definitely the hard thing. Uh, having made a movie about Ruth, how do you capture that without boring the hell out of an audience is a, is, a, is an incredible challenge to navigate to, to sort of capture her cadences without just leaving long moments of silence for the audiences looking at their phones. Laura, any any stories regarding deep meaningful relationships to the justice? Well, I you know I I can talk a little bit about the clerkship, which you know it's it's very um, I mean I I sort of would echo what what Daniel is saying. She is a, she was a very you know, careful person in, in every word that, uh, you know, she would write in an opinion. And, and, um, you know, one of the, one of the things I was told before the clerkship, which turned out to be true is that, um, you know, sometimes if you were giving her a draft of, um, of an opinion, uh, she would physically take scissors and snip out the part that she thought was appropriate to keep and use tape to tape it down into her yellow pad and then, you know, write, handwrite around it what ought to have been there and what was, you know, in her words, the right uh, way to go. And, you know, that when you read, if you sat down and read the body of her opinions, you would see that the words are, you know, the words are hers. She cared about the progression of the argument, the result. She cared a lot about tone and the parties and making sure that the gravity of whatever was being, you know, written about was, you know, coming through, through her, you know, through her language. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, and she, you know, she always, she, she cared a lot about, um, you know, she cultivated a very, um, devoted group of clerks who you know adore her <laughs> and and um you know i think she did that through her mentorship and taking the time to really um 
uh, help make sure that the things she cared about uh, were explained and and that others valued them too. And she never lost her temper. I don't. I you know she was quiet, and so um, I don't remember seeing. I wouldn't describe her as somebody who showed a lot of temper as, uh, you know, like anger and at people. They're just, you do the work, you know, you express yourself carefully, <laughs> you know, through the work. She might not like an opinion, you know, if there's a, somebody she disagreed with, I think it was, um, you know, the disagreement was on the merits of the argument and not necessarily, um, you know, personal, personalized in a way. And remember, she was friends with Justice Scalia. So she had, you know, even though he had kind of a harsh pen, uh, they managed to create, uh, you know, they created a friendship despite that. Um, I will say one thing I do know that she didn't love is that when, when I was clerking, it was a year when at least three times the advocates flipped her and Justice O'Connor in, you know, when they were addressing the court and, you know, this, the, the one, I think it's a National Association of Women Judges gave them T-shirts that said, you know, I'm Ruth, not Sandra. I'm Sandra, not Ruth. And, you know, I think that did irk her that they didn't look alike. They didn't sound alike. They didn't sit on the same side of the bench. They didn't have the same political, you know, they, you know uh, judicial philosophy often. And, you know, why were they, what, where was this uh, slip up coming from? But, but, you know, did she hold it against them? Like, you know, no, I think she was beyond that. What I love about Estelle's question is, it, at least to me, it kind of echoes what, <coughs> excuse me, Daniel was talking about when, you know, there are certain ways in presentation that she would have to take care of uh, paying attention to, whereas a man doesn't necessarily have to. And I, and this is, certainly we had this thrown at Hillary Clinton all the time. If she showed any sense of, of anger of something, that meant she was, you know, too emotional and, and blah, blah, blah. Whereas we can have a raving madman and that's just seen as either powerful or you know that's how it is so it, it i i don't know if, if if you know this if you have the insight into this but i mean and maybe daniel does i mean do you get the sense that she did get angry about stuff and just was very clear about not transmitting that or that she genuinely was that that calm and 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 uh she dealt with things um without getting outwardly angry I, you know, I, I, I will push it to Daniel, but I think in her opinions, like she, you know, she would, um, uh, there's, I mean, there's something I've written about before, so I can talk about that. There was a, you know, recent, in this past group of election, in this recent election, there was a case from Wisconsin about um, whether um, the timing of uh, receiving absentee ballots and um, and the court, uh, I think the lower courts had said there was uh, the timing could be extended so that people could continue to vote absentee and that they could be received, you know, some period of time after election day. And the Supreme Court, um, there was an injunction. I think the Supreme Court stayed the injunction and said no, that the ballots, you know, they couldn't be flexible about um, under under Wisconsin law. There wasn't the opportunity to be flexible about receiving ballots for the primary. And I think this was April, you know, when everybody was just getting used to um, the pandemic. And, you know, Justice Ginsburg dissented and she wrote, this is a matter of utmost importance and it's important to the health of the nation and our democracy, you know? And so she, you know, she wrote that in her opinion. I think she believed that and felt that. And I also think she thought that her voice was the most important and influential used in that kind of a way, not, you know, she's a justice, so she's not gonna stand on a soapbox and, um, you know, pontificate. And she was able, you know, she had an avenue to make her um, you know, views thought in that way. And I think like the Shelby County decision where the Supreme Court struck down um, part of the Voting Rights Act and the justice wrote a very um, uh, forceful opinion about why that was, you know, why that was wrong. And I think that's part of what turned into the notorious, um, you know, persona, but it's really up to it's up to the judges or the justices to clearly express their views about where the law should go, I think she would say. And then it's up to people to like, under, you know, read it, understand it, and do something about it if they disagree with the direction that the um, law is moving. 
this is a, a conversation she and I actually had um, because uh, I started my research by going through her old files of the Library of Congress from the 60s and 70s and reading her sort of marginalia um, on, on briefs and, and decisions and, and um, you know, other case law. And, uh, and the person on the page and in the marginalia was like incredibly sarcastic um, and biting. And, and we, we, you know, after, after a day of going through the boxes, we would sit down and we would have dinner together. And I said, so, so you know, for example, uh, one of my favorite examples, but I'm not, I think, Laura, maybe you will know better than I do. I think it's Mueller v. Oregon is the case, but I'm not 100% sure that I'm right, is the one where the justice um, wrote uh, that it is the law, quote, the law of the creator that women should um, sort of be subject to the rules of their husbands, that they're there to take care of the home. And, uh, and Ruth had written in, in the margin, and how did the creator communicate this to you? Um, and, and, and I, and so we were talking about the fact that I said, I said, so clearly you have these thoughts in your head, right? Like you're, you are, you're a human being capable of the full range of emotions, but you can't actually say that, you know, in front of a judge. Oh, no, no, no. You can't say that to a judge. And she, she agreed. And, and, um, that's really what on the basis of sex became about was her, um, finding her voice, to learn, you know, what she always said was, uh, in the, especially in the early you know, years of, of arguing gender law, she had to become a teacher. Um, it was less about being a lawyer, more about being a teacher, teaching judges how um, she experiences the world so that they can empathize um, or sympathize. And, uh, and, and so that's really what the movie became about, was her learning how to sort of put aside the frustration and the anger and the sarcasm to just focus on making the argument that's going to work, win this case so you can win the next case and win the next case and win the next case, um, because that was her approach to the law. Um, and that was the challenge, again, that's, that was the challenge of writing Ruth, is how do you take someone who is, you know, basically, if you've ever read like her, her writings from when she was 12, like she burst forth out of the head of Zeus fully formed. Um, and, and like, how do you take someone like that and give them a character arc so they feel like a character in a movie who's growing and learning. And that was the thing that she sort of learned over law school and over the start of her career. Jennifer, can we uh, chat a little bit about the film score? I, I, I liked, I loved the, you know, the upbeat of it. And then I started thinking about um, just how, how fitting it all was throughout the entire documentary. Uh, but in the end, I noticed that they had original titles, meaning so, these were originally written for the film. Yes, thank you for thank you for that. Um, it's just also just I love hearing everyone else speak. It's just so interesting. Um, um, yeah, yeah. So thanks to a grant I received, I was able to finish the film and and also um, hire two different composers. Um, and I really wanted um, the beginning to feel kind of. Uh, a little quotidian, but a little moody, mysterious, and um, and a little weird, like like a little like. And so the vibraphone, I think, kind of gives a little like, woo, like what's happening, and um, that's how I hear it at least. And and it was such a joy to work with Claire Manchon, who scored the first uh, song that that track, and the second one, the ending. I worked with Lafrey Ski, also a joy. They're both fantastic composers. Um, if anyone's looking for composers, I recommend you hire them. Um, they're brilliant and easy to work with. And, um, and so I really wanted to go for a really big sound at the end. And I, 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 I love Prince. I mean, I had thought about opera at first, but there was so much opera in the RBG feature doc. I, I was not going to, you know, go near that. And, um, and so, um, I, yes, yeah, so I worked closely with each composer and, and they listened so well to what I wanted and came up with different ideas. And, and actually, once we came upon sort of a certain sound, it was really easy to finish. And I love there's like a little bass at the very end of the second song. So, I mean, I just, I, I love both songs so much. So thank you for asking. Am I right in remembering that the second song is called A Zillion Pockets? It's called, good memory, Dan. Yeah, it's called A Zillion Pockets. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Lafrey said, um, you know, like uh, she was, the click at the end when Justice Ginsburg refers to her mother's purse and the click sound it made um, inspired the first sounds of the ending song. 
And then Lafray was also just completely enchanted by all the pockets and the talk of pockets. So um, yeah, I think that was inspiring. I want to talk about leadership, uh, her as a leader. And, and um, you know, that certainly she was a leader in at least two important ways, as this trailblazing lawyer uh, fighting for equal rights. And then there was her role as, you know, one of only nine Supreme Court justices, you know, one of the most powerful positions, um, as well as that public facing, whether it was the RB, you know, notorious RBG or just the, you know, her, her any public statements she might have made. Um, could each of you maybe start with Laura and having worked directly with her, um, could you talk about her as a leader and, and maybe, you know, how she, if, if, if you saw how she specifically tried to teach or, or use her position to uh, lead people and not just kind of like, well, here it is, do what you want with it. Yeah, it's interesting because the role of a justice, of course, the, the Supreme Court is the highest court, but you're also one of nine. You know, you're not just out there on your own, right, doing your own thing and, you know, writing your own um, uh, whatever, you, you know, whatever you feel like. And you're also not a policymaker, right? So in a way, judging is a passive activity in the sense that you wait for disputes to come to you. You don't um, go out and you know, uh, although she did obviously as a, as a lawyer craft, you know, litigation strategy, it's very different when you're, um, you know, when you're, when you're judging, which was the role that I, you know, I saw her in, um, you know, I think I would talk about it probably mostly in relation to, well, there's probably two things. One that people don't think about too much is that, you know, she loves civil procedure, which people don't talk a lot about. Who doesn't, about. right? <laughs> and, but it, well, but who doesn't in the sense of like, this is what we go through to treat people fairly in the yeah. judicial process. And so I think, she, and she was often assigned to write opinions that weren't glamorous, but that were about really important procedural issues that related to fairness. And so I think kind of grabbing that and, and making that her own, you know, was one aspect of her leadership that's often overlooked. She also, also every year, I believe she um, uh, circulated the first opinion of anyone who was ever assigned to write anything. She, I think she just decided, you know, I'm going to be first and my opinions are going to come out. I'm always going to be on time. You know, so setting a good example, um, you know, in that way. But anyway, the other issue is really women's rights and leadership and women's rights. And I think, you know, having the opportunity to be a leader in developing um, legal strategy to create greater equality in the country. And then the year before I clerked was the very big decision of um, involving the Virginia military um, Institute, VMI, which was, you know, I know one of her um, favorite cases as a, you know, as a justice in which she was able then to, you know, write an opinion to uh, more, um, uh, you know, to continue to solidify equality in the law. And I think that she had a very long, you know, view of how law develops, how the Constitution develops, and, you know, uh, set an example for how to do that over, you know, decades in a career. So uh, I think that's how I would see her as a leader. Great. Thank you. Um, Daniel, any thoughts on her specifically as a leader? I mean, I think, I think her role as a leader sort of in society came from her influence. And I think her influence came from uh, just a hunger for authenticity um, in the world right now. Um, you know, Ruth, you know, was arguing gender law in the 70s, you know, went to law school at a time when she never expected to become a, you know, a judge, much less a Supreme Court justice, um, you know, arguing, you know, doing pro bono legal work. So she wasn't, she wasn't, she didn't do the things she did to become rich or powerful or influential or um, famous. Um, none of those things were ever part of, you know, what she just worked for what she believed in. Um and and then as a Supreme Court justice with a lifetime appointment, she didn't need your vote. She couldn't take your money. You know, she apparently, you know, I guess if you offered her a handbag, she might have taken it. Um, but uh, she um, and so the things she said, she said because she believed in them. Um, and I think there's such a lack of that authenticity right now and um, amongst leaders, amongst our national leaders, um, just generally 
that I, I think that's where her influence came from. I think that's where her sort of power as a leader came from is because you, you believe that she, even if you didn't always agree with her, you knew that she meant what she said and she said it for, you know, because she believes in it, not because, you know, of whatever other calculation someone might make. Jennifer, how about you? What are your, your thoughts on uh, RBG yeah. as a leader? I mean, I think I, I, I would say something repeating a little bit, but someone who is so comfortable with her unusual pace of talking. So I do have more footage when there is some deliberation and she didn't change that. Like, I love that. And that she wore gloves a lot. And, um, you know, she, I guess it sounds so banal, but she really was who she was. And that included being beyond diligent, beyond hardworking, really, and and in her own interests, which were the law and I think sense of equity and fairness. And I mean, to have that, to live your life that way and to be an authentic person is, and to see that in a woman born in 1933 uh, with her career, I mean, I could start crying. I mean, I, I, there is that hunger for that. So I think her being herself and all of those details, you know, the big, in the big way, but then the, the detailed ways. And, and I want to hear what it still has to say, but I have two questions. I just, I have, I'd love to, if we could then later ask Laura, what is civil procedure? Like, I don't know. What civil, <laughs> I should know that. Like, I don't know what it is. I'm sure it's opposite of criminal, but I don't really know. And then I'm curious if Estelle's experience in law school, like how that affected her experience of the law, like that terrible treatment. Great question, Estelle. No, but uh, what I want to say about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is, uh, uh, aside from her profession, uh, the idea that she understood, perhaps later in life, or whenever it came about, uh, the importance of physical health to the ordinary human being, her caring about humanity, uh, and about human beings and her willingness to let her trainer put out that book with her name, which essentially was for people like me who are, have nothing to do with the law, nothing to do with anything, Washington courts, blah, 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 you know, or intellectualism, her, her understanding of what a human being needed to be able to work at the very high level she did. And to let that guy put out this book about saying to everybody in the world, me, you know, get get for Christmas this book about Ruth Bader Ginsburg says you should keep your body in good shape, which uh, there's nothing more basic. But I think it shows that uh, her thinking went far beyond the uh, legal community, far beyond justice and into life itself. And I just think that's profoundly important because it's not something that uh, anyone in the Supreme Court has done before that I know of, or people who are in these niches or tenured or intellectual or where the law veers. You know, we know they mostly love theater and opera that I know about people in the legal profession. But I thought it was profoundly wonderful that she would let that guy uh, write that book for the good of humanity, so to say. Well, civil procedure is the rules that govern litigation of yeah, non-criminal matters. And so uh, it's the rules that lawyers have to follow in putting their initial complaint together, in filing motions that are attacking the complaint in different ways. It governs... Um, uh, discovery practice and what you can have a right to get from the other side. Um, one of the biggest just controversial issues today that I think would fall in the bucket would be like arbitration. Can you compel to the, the extent to which, uh, um, or that sort of broadly fits within at the extent to which you can, uh, things are going to be heard in, in, um, uh, in court versus uh, heard in arbitration. That has to do with a different statute, but it still is broadly about the rules that litigation follows. <laughs> Jennifer's other question was for, for Estelle and, and the uh, your your foray into law school. And was that a another path in your life that that things would have turned out very differently? We would have lost this great artist you are, or would you just have been 
still a great actress, still a great director, but you would have negotiated the toughest contracts in the world. <laughs> no, you know, I grew up in New England and uh, I acted uh, all the time. I was a child in uh, community uh, theater, but I didn't think it was something you did when you grew up, though I had learned the basic rules of entertaining because I like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, heard all those pocketbooks snap open and I knew I had made people cry and they were getting out their handkerchiefs. So it's uh, that particular sound was very meaningful to me too. But I thought uh, being a New Englander way back to 1620, I mean, whoever heard of uh, anybody acting when they grew up. So I thought the next best thing would be to go into politics, which I started to do. I had a very uneven course into the adult uh, entertainment world. My father and my grandfather were both lawyers out of Harvard. And I went to, uh, so I thought, well, that'll be a good beginning. And I was very interested in constitutional legal theory. You know, I wasn't so much interested in practicing law, though I worked in their law firm all the time I was a teenager. <laughs> but I did love the thinking about it and the thinking that's required for legal activity. And um, so Harvard did not take women and I had to go to Boston University, which I did and uh, was one of two people in that first year class with these 200 or so, you know, uh, men. We went to lockovers for a drink. We had to sit in the stairway out behind the building because they didn't let women come into the bar. And uh, it it was increasingly clear that this was going to be a very lonely and difficult life. And, and, and uh, so then the following year, Harvard took women, but uh, they would only take them in the first year of class. So in spite of my... Uh, uh, very high marks and good reputation for my first year in law school, uh, I would have to go back and repeat it because that's when Harvard is going to take people. So by this time, it became very clear to me that this was going to be a very abnormal kind of life that I was really not prepared to make the sacrifice for. And I was all that time singing with dance bands. So I had a a finger in another direction to go. But I I did go, you know, my first job in uh, New York and just by accident because I was visiting was to be one of eight people to put together the Today Show. So I went back into that news world and into that men's world for a while before I finally found my true love, which of course is entertaining people in the uh, live theater, which is what I've done all the rest of my life, uh, eschewing fame and fortune and very actually happy, happy in life and happy for the uh, journey I've been on. Yeah. And your directing is amazing, Estelle. Like, when Uh, did you start directing? Oh, I don't know. I always had this idea to get a lot of people together in a room and start doing something. And, uh, I do have this big, you know, political, social justice thing. So it infects my directing a lot, what I direct. And I only I only do things I love to do, which is not really true of a lot of people in my business. I don't know about any other business, but I, I only do things I love to do. Should be the motto of life, do only do things that you love to do. I can't believe it, but we have already spent an hour. Um, it's been so enjoyable to listen to all of you and uh, remember the great Justice Ginsburg. The last question is for Jennifer. And with every great story told, uh, the audience is left with wanting more. And so um, what happens next? What happens to the handbags? Uh, is the, the short documentary, will it lead to something else? What are your plans after? Thank you for asking. I, I, it, I do have a larger project, a documentary project about women in bags. And so um, stay tuned. And um, I'm interested in the relationship between humans and objects, in meaningful objects. And I actually have a short film about a 92-year-old retired New York City marine biology teacher named Mickey Cohen, who talks about the annual mating of horseshoe crabs on Jamaica Bay. And, you know, horseshoe crabs, 
they're the most beautiful ancient creatures. They're older than dinosaurs. And there's something so inspiring about their survival 450 million years. So um, look out for bags and horseshoe crabs. <laughs> John, you have the last words. Uh, I want to thank all of our panelists. We could have spent an hour with each of you. you you've all got great stories and, and so much to talk about. Um, thank you for everyone who's watching and listening to us online. Uh, you can find, again, our upcoming programs as well as video and audio of our past programs at commonwealthclub.org. So everyone stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll hopefully see you again in the future in person before too long.